Hey, just a quick heads up that if you make whiskey, deadlines are fast approaching to enter the 2021 Heartland Whiskey Competition. It's open to craft whiskeys from all 50 states that incorporate corn in their mash bill, and 17 corn-supported states can compete for a best-of-state award. Head to AmericanCraftSpirits.org to learn more, and there you can also register for our annual Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show in Louisville this December. Thanks. I knew that somebody was eventually going to do it, and I wanted to be the first. I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. Probably six months or to eight months before Richard and Austin came to the hands-on whiskey class, uh, you know, an article popped up, and it was an article about these two guys that had started a distillery, the first legal distillery in Mississippi since Prohibition, and, you know, it was called Cathead, and I remember reading it and showing it to my wife and being like, ah, these, these, these guys figured it out, you know? Like, how did they figure this thing out? From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, From Wine to Spirits. It's fair to say that wine took Mississippi native Philip Ladner around the world. Just out of college, he worked in a wine shop in New York City, which he parlayed into a production job in New Zealand, followed by jobs at well-respected wineries in Napa. But he eventually found his way to distilling, and a chance meeting with the founders of Mississippi's first legal distillery led him back to his home state, where he's the distiller for Cathead Distillery in Jackson. To kick things off, I asked Philip how winemaking prepared him for a career as a distiller. I think that making wine really kind of helped me learn, especially from the winemakers I worked with, how to put together a blend, um, especially when it comes to selecting barrels for bourbon, um, you know, how to make sure that all the different pieces kind of combined work together and, you know, produce a product that is consistent um, and also is, is of high quality. And you, you have, you know, a lot of experience in, in wine and, and it, it sort of runs in the family, right? Uh, and I, I, I think you've got some some folks in California that you mentioned, but also it sounds like your, your sister is the one who really got you into it. Yeah, exactly. My, um, my sister currently works for a company called the sorting table. Um, it has offices in both Napa Valley and, and New York and they're a, a wine importer of, you know, wines from all over the world. And before that she worked for broadbent selections, which is also another wine importer that imports, you know, Madeira's and ports and, you know, multiple family owned wineries and, uh, you know, a lot of great wines and both of those importers. So yeah, my sister is definitely very influential in getting me started in kind of the alcohol industry, I guess to say, and, um, I have cousins that make wine, have an aunt that owns a winery and vineyard and Adelaida, which is, you know, in Paso, Paso Robles basically. And, the Paso region and um, my sister's husband for a long time was a the cocktail columnist for the New York Times so I always like to say you know if we're not making it or selling it or drinking it you know <laughs> yeah 
we're probably talking about it. At yeah, some point yeah. In the family. And and so was it in college when that's that uh, she she really started getting you into it? Yes, yeah, she um she worked for a. We both are from Mississippi, from the coast of Mississippi, a little town called Long Beach, Mississippi, and we both went to the University of Mississippi. And she's six years older than me. She managed a kind of a high um, high end restaurant in Oxford, Mississippi, called City Grocery, and got them um, on the Wine Spectator Top 100 list, and was doing winemaker dinners, and took a. Uh, the job with Broadbent Selections and moved to, to New York to work as a sales rep for Broadbent in the tri-state area, um, New Jersey, Connecticut, and, and New York, and would send, you know, some wine to me. And, you know, at that time in college, we were, you know, drinking the classic $10 bottles from, you know, Chile and Argentina and, you know, and they yeah. were good, but the wine that she was sending us was a lot better. And I, I just remember, you know, sitting around with friends and being like, you know, this, you know, kind of jokingly being like, yeah, this really does smell like, you know, cherries or, you know, this has a lot of kind of oak notes. And that kind of just kept progressing and really kind of started piquing my interest in, in wines and the difference in wines and bridles and styles and areas and um, so yeah, she was, she was very influential in that, that aspect. And then did you go, did you go to New York before you, uh, you know, spent time in New Zealand and California? Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. I went to, um, after college, I, uh, you know, had all electives left my last semester in college and I was kind of like, all right, I, you know, kind of want to get out of here. And so I, actually went to Australia my last year in college and <laughs> studied in Australia and finished, you know, my college degree or, you know, my college years in Australia and traveled around for a little bit Awesome. and came back and, you know, really didn't have an idea, you know, so freshly, you know, graduated from college and traveling, didn't have any idea of what I really wanted to do. You know, I had cooked all the way through college. I knew I could get a cooking job, but um, yeah, my sister and, and her husband had just moved to New York and had bought an old farmhouse and uh, had just had their firstborn, my, my, my nephew. Um, and, you know, my sister, I think, kind of saw that I was, you know, in limbo and they needed some help, you know, not only redoing the farmhouse, but kind of helping with, uh, you know, taking care of my nephew because they were both traveling at the time she was busy my, my brother-in-law was writing for you know men's journal and other things and um doing a lot of freelance stuff and so i i moved up to hang out with them kind of help them out at the you know around the house and um help out when i can you know with with my nephew when they were busy and uh after a couple months of doing that uh I, I had friends in New York City and in Manhattan. I was visiting with them and spending a lot of times on the weekends in, in New York. And uh, my sister had a friend that owned a wine shop in the Upper West Side, and they needed some help uh, at the wine shop. And so she kind of hooked me up with them and started working at uh, a little wine shop called Bacchus 
It was on uh, the Upper West Side on Broadway between 70 and 71st Street. And it's a pretty unique store. It did um, it classified everything by taste instead of like varietal, you know. So nice. One wall was one wall was all white, but it was you know crisp or buttery, you know, and then. Um, there was the red side wall that had kind of like bold and uh, light, you know, the high end stuff, champagne. So it was, it was a, it was a really unique store. Um, and all it did was wine. So it, um, it definitely, you know, helped me out in learning more about the wine industry. And through that, I kind of networked my way into a harvest in New Zealand and went to New Zealand uh, and did a harvest at Spa Valley. And and what was that experience like? Was it, um, I mean, did you, did you have really any idea going into that, you know, what, what you were going to be doing? <laughs> Actually, no, you know, nobody's ever really asked me that. Um, I mean, I did in a sense, I knew how they made wine just from being around my sister and working in the wine shop. But, I, you know, I didn't really have like, the I guess the understanding of how I mean how much hard work it really is you know um and so you know I had never worked in a winery so they kind of I think they put me on the easiest job there is which is running the Savion Blanc press and you know processing all the Savion Blanc that was coming in for the harvest and I, I mean I loved it it was great um you know i I kind of focused I think that first year really on white bridles they they let me do a lot of cleaning of course sure you know? yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but no it was great I mean we you know I got to learn kind of Savion Blanc uh Gewurztraminer and um a lot of white bridles um Spy Valley is in Marlboro so it's a big Savion Blanc a lot of Pinot Noir but they kind of split their, their two cellars in between a red cellar and a white cellar. And, um, you know, it was, it was great and got to meet a lot of different people from all over the place, Italy, France, you know, South Africa. Um, and that really, really piqued my interest in, in the winemaking and, and the ability to, you know, work a harvest and make enough money to travel to the next hemisphere and, and do it again. And seeing all these, people my age doing the same thing. Um, and a lot of them had a lot of background in wine, you know, they had families that owned wineries or they had, you know, been going to school for wine. And here I am, this guy from Mississippi with, you know, a degree in archeology span or a degree in anthropology and English, you know, <laughs> thinking I was originally going to, you know, do some archeological digs or something. And, uh, you know, ended up in the alcohol industry, basically. Well, you know, if you had if you had done those archaeology digs, you probably would have stumbled upon some like ancient winemaking uh, tools, right? right? So it's right. Yeah, right. but I, yeah, I was I was going to ask you if you were you know at any point like at that that shop in New York or even in New Zealand if you had ever thought like you know a few years ago when I was in college I never would have imagined myself here. Yeah, no, I I, I didn't. Um... You know, again, I I really thought that I was going to kind of, you know, end up doing some type of, you know, anthropology, archaeology stuff. And 
you know, my life kind of ended up just taking a totally different course and landing in the, you know, the great world of making booze, basically. Yeah. So, so then after New Zealand, um, you, you eventually ended up in California. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, your, your, your winemaking experience in California. Yeah. Um, so yeah, after New Zealand, I kind of came back. I, I had the great hopes of going to, uh, Hungary to learn about Tokai, um, you know, and, and see kind of how they make wine in Eastern Europe. And that, uh, kind of fell through at the last minute. And I was actually kind of hanging out with a friend of mine in Charleston, South Carolina, and found out about that. Um, and, you know, with started looking at different jobs, you know, in the wine industry that I could possibly get and sending resumes off. And I sent a resume off to uh, Lewis Sellers, which is a really high end winery. You know, they've gotten a couple of number top tens, number one, a couple, couple years ago um, with wine spectator top 100 list. And, you know, just a classic Napa Cabernet blend producer. Um, and yeah, I sent my resume to them. And uh, at that time, a, a guy named Jade Barrett was the assistant winemaker and he was from New Zealand. And he basically, I, I, you know, from just me and Jade talking about it, he, uh, I think he read my resume and saw that I was, again, a guy from Mississippi that had just been to New Zealand. He was from New Zealand. He was like, he needed somebody to come work. And so he kind of piqued his interest and he called me up and offered me a harvest job. And uh, I actually left about three days before Katrina out of New Orleans to go to, to Napa to uh, do a harvest with Lewis Sellers and, you know, Katrina hit and I, uh, I was out there, you know, when Katrina hit and my, my family's from the coast of Mississippi. And so I was very tempted to come back, but you know, there wasn't much I could do from, you know, talking to with my parents and they were like, you know, stay out there. You're trying to, you know, do a career with this stuff, stay out there, go through the harvest. You can always come back afterwards. So, I did that harvest with Lewis and that was another great experience, you know, just seeing the quality of grapes that they were bringing in from multiple vineyards and, you know, kind of learning their, their process and, you know, getting to hang out with Randy Lewis and Debbie. Um, they're just a great family. The Lewis's are, are, are quality people and they make some amazing wines. So, uh, you know, kind of switched focus to more of, you know, red varietals out there at that time, they were only doing, you know, the reds. So, um, got to learn a lot just about kind of the Napa, Napa style, you know, high alcohol concentrated wines. Yeah. And then it, through that process, eventually you, uh, you find your way into the world of distilling and, um, it sounds like that was kind of a, a process in terms of, you know, wanting to learn more about it and um, not necessarily being able to find the right people at the right time. So what, uh, what was the road to distilling like? You know, after Lewis, I, um, 
I I worked at uh, a place called Jericho Canyon in, in Calistoga um, with Jade Barrett again. He uh, he had moved to left Lewis and gone to work for Jericho Canyon. They were new, not a new winery, but they had just built a, a winery um, on their property, and so got to help install all the new equipment there and you know get their cave aging system going and um even learning more about you know in the vineyard and uh at the winery and then kind of flipped around to working for palmire um got a job with palmire and started working at palmire um which is another great classic napa winery and kind of learned under aaron green who was the winemaker there at that time and during that time at palmire i started getting interested in distilling um I saw, I guess I'd come back to New Orleans and I had gone to old New Orleans rum and really liked the idea of what they were doing. There was nothing else like that in the South, really. There was old New Orleans rum. There was nothing in Mississippi, nothing in Alabama, you know. So started kind of piquing my interest. And, you know, there was uh, Domaine Charbet in Napa. And from just living in Napa and working in Napa and visiting wineries, I had been by Charbet. They were doing some amazing stuff. Um, there was Jermaine Robin, and he was doing some amazing stuff. There was Hangar One. And I went to all, visited all those places and, you know, really, really piqued my interest in the distilling world and started kind of researching it trying to figure out how I could learn more about it, you know, try going by and trying to introduce myself or dropping a resume and being like, Hey, I'm a winemaker or I'm a, you know, I'm working in the wine industry currently in Napa and would love to, you know, come learn more. And, you know, at that time, everybody was kind of like, ah, you know, we don't really need anybody. I mean, now as a distiller, I kind of understand it. It's sometimes, you know, some, everybody's always like, Oh, I'd love to come help out or taste and, you're kind of like, well, you know, yeah, sure. <laughs> but, you know, like, right. Sometimes it's more, more effort than it's worth, you know, but um, back then I was like, why doesn't anybody want to like teach me anything? You know, um, was willing to work for free and uh, you know, it ended up somehow meeting uh, Bill Owens. I think I had read, I think he had just started ADI, you know, it was a couple years old and, um, he was trying to get some of the hands-on whiskey classes started that he was doing at Stillwater Spirits in Petaluma. And I think I had read about it or come across it somewhere. And so I'd, I remember calling Bill or getting a call from Bill because I had, you know, reached out trying to figure out what these hands-on whiskey classes were. And he called and told me all about them and told me the cost. And I was like, man, I can't, you know, Bill, I can't, I can't do that right now. You know, it's, can't afford that but i would love if there's anything i can do i'd love to come you know help out or be a part of it or just come sit in the class and he was like yeah we'll just come on you know so i did um i went to a couple of classes you know and i wouldn't be there the whole week but i would you know kind of show up and you know wash dishes or you know hand out beers whatever it was you know yeah whatever bill wanted you know at that time and there was a lot of people doing that you know there at that time, it was it was brand new. There was, um, you know, Andrew Faulkner was around. He was, you know, helping take pictures or helping drive people back and forth to the airport. Nancy Farley was around. 
she was kind of doing the same thing. We were all just trying to help out, trying to learn. And Bill was great about bringing people in like that. You know, he needed the help. He, you know, could, uh, could use the help and, and, uh, was great about it. And through Bill, I, I met, uh, and through those classes, I, I met Jordan Vi. And Jordan at that time was the distiller for Stillwater Spirits and was teaching the hands-on whiskey classes for ADI, um, along with a, a lot of other people that were kind of coming and going. And, um, you know, started talking to Jordan uh, just about, you know, learning about distilling and who I was. Jordan lived in Napa at that time and was working at Stillwater Spirits in Petaluma and you know, he said, yeah, man, come, I'll start showing you some stuff, you know, come hang out. You can, I'll, I'll kind of show you the ropes and the distilling aspects. And, um, so I did and kind of unknown to me, uh, Jordan had already taken a job with Breckenridge distillery in Breckenridge and was basically training me to take over his job at Stillwater. And, you know, about a month and a half into, you know, kind of my training, he let me know that, you know, and so uh, we kind of had a very fast study of what all it takes from reporting to uh, distillation to proofing, blending, and uh, kind of just work together over like the course of the next, you know, year to really dial everything in. And then he went to Breckenridge and I stayed at Stillwater. I took the job at Stillwater and we kept teaching classes together. I started co-teaching the classes with Jordan at Stillwater, their hands-on whiskey classes. And uh, yeah, just learned a lot. I mean, Stillwater Spirits, Brendan Moylan is, is, you know, kind of the hidden gem of the distilling world. You know, I don't know if a lot of people know how much Brendan has given to the community, you know, in the sense of letting those classes be taught there, showing people the ropes, doing custom distillations, you know, the, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and I, I want to go back for a second to, to that, you know, when, when Jordan is like, yeah, well, I'm actually like, you know, training you to take over for me. Was there ever any hesitation on your part uh, to, to stay in the wine world or were you like distilling is you know, is what I want to do. This is, I want to go all in on it. No, at that time. Yeah, I was all in on it. I mean, I, I saw, I think I'm, you know, it was just a, a great opportunity at that time. And I, it still is really, but you know, with the, there wasn't a lot of opportunity as there is now to become a distiller or, you know, work in a distillery in that sense. There wasn't a lot of distilleries around, you know, so. Um, and this this I, was I around, this was around like this 2010? Like, uh, yeah, so this would have been like 2009, 2010, yep. Okay, gotcha. Um, and it and, was starting to take off. I mean, there was a lot of people coming to these classes that now have, you know, uh, I, I mean, have great distilleries, you know? Yeah. And, and so then eventually you start teaching these classes. Right. Yeah. Co-teaching them with, uh, with, with Jordan. Um, and we'd have multiple other speakers, but yeah, we would, uh, we would co-teach the classes at Stillwater. 
for ADI, and uh, that's kind of where I met Austin and Richard. After a break, Philip recalls how a pair of distilling students changed the course of his life. This podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire craft spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. Around the same time that Philip was teaching distilling classes, Richard Patrick and Austin Evans were getting Cathead Distillery off the ground in Mississippi. Now, Philip and his wife had been thinking about a move home to the Magnolia State, but from far away in California, Philip couldn't seem to figure out a path towards starting a distillery in Mississippi. I was looking at the idea of how can I open a distillery, you know, in New Orleans or in Mississippi or. You know, again, there was only old New Orleans rum at that time, and so I was like, okay, how how can I, how can I get something down on the in the South like this? And you know, I started reading all the the laws and legislations for you know the multiple multiple pages of of laws about distillation and distilleries in Mississippi, and just could not really understand it or or, or even grasp like how I could do it. And I remember setting a Google alert for, you know, the classic Google alert, you know, Mississippi distillery, you know, yeah, just because I knew that somebody was eventually going to do it. And I wanted to be the first. I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. And, uh, you know, I would say probably six months or eight months before Richard and Austin came to the hands-on whiskey class, uh, you know, an article popped up and it was an article about these two guys that had started a distillery, the first legal distillery in Mississippi since prohibition. And, you know, it was called Cathead. And I remember reading it and showing it to my wife and being like, ah, these, these, these guys figured it out, you know, like how did they figure this thing out? I mean, they, they were living in Mississippi. They, you know, they had moved to Mississippi for this to open it up and meeting with Mississippi, you know, ABC and, and talking to people and basically trying to figure it out also. But, you know, I was in California, they were in Mississippi, they figured it out. I was a little bit jealous. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, a little bit like, okay, well, you know, there goes my, my opportunity kind of a deal. And, uh, you know, then, then the class comes around and I remember Andrew Faulkner again, used to pick people up from the airport and shuttle them to, the class for the week long class. And I was at the distillery and I remember Andrew pulled up and, you know, he pulls up to the distillery and he's like, Hey, Phil, I've got, I've got some guys from Mississippi in the car with me. I was like, oh, awesome. You know, it's like, great. Oh, these guys are coming to the class. <laughs> right. So, yeah. They're, they're coming to rub it in. 
right, yeah. right. So I'm like, oh, great, you know. Um, but you know, it was fine. I mean, it was kind of one of those things where it was like, you know, whatever. And, uh, yeah, so we, uh, the first day is always kind of a meet and greet, you know, we have a little cookout, we have some beers, everybody kind of gets familiar, you know, a lot of talking, um, everybody's just kind of getting in town and, you know, as we're, we're talking and I'm meeting everybody and, uh, you know, probably had just enough, uh, liquid power in me to kind of start talking to Austin and Richard and, you know, we were doing, Hey, I'm from Mississippi also, you know, do you know, so-and-so, do you know, so-and-so. And one of the names that I brought up was the guy named major Marco. Um, and I said, you know, do you know major? And they were like, yeah, we do. We actually just hired him, you know, as our first sales rep. And I was like, Oh wow. Like I went to college with him, you know? Um, and so that kind of broke the ice and as we're talking you know then the night kind of progresses uh you know i i kind of again with enough liquid power in me or courage i guess you can call it i was like well you know look i we can either work together or or i'm you know i'm basically <laughs> gonna be your competition you know and uh yeah i'm I, I think they kind of took that as like, okay, well, who is this guy? And from Austin and Richard's standpoint, I guess a couple of minutes later, Bill Owen gathers everybody up, you know, and introduce, starts introducing everybody. And he's, you know, this is Jordan. He's going to be one of your teachers this week. And this is Philip. He's the distiller here at Stillwater Spirits. And, you know, they, I think they both kind of looked at each other and said, well, I think we, we found our guy kind of a deal. So, yeah, and b because oh. up until that point, you hadn't really let on that you were actually the distiller there and that you were uh, co-teaching this class, right? Right, right. Yeah, we were, you know, it was kind of just one of those those moments where, you know, where, where we were chatting, but, you know, I don't, I, I may have, you know, that's been such a, such a long time ago and we, we all try to talk about it every once in a while and bring it back up. But, you know, I think it was, and, and maybe I did, but they missed they missed it you know they didn't really understand it or something um so i think they, yeah they were a little bit shocked by it um but yeah we ended up hanging out all that week and you know knowing some of the same people and uh you know just kind of stayed in contact over the next couple of years I, I came down a couple of times and did some consulting for them kind of saw what they were doing you know adjusted a couple of things for them showed them some you know different distillation techniques and blending techniques and proofing techniques and filtration and um, you know water filtration all that kind of great stuff and um stayed in contact yeah and they they offered me a job in the end of 2011 um and i started working for them in january 15th 2012 and yeah. came on to cathead and you know got things going yeah and in, in talking to richard and austin for the the story that I'm writing for Craft Spirits Magazine, um, you know, they were both kind of like, yeah, we, we were at the airport leaving on that trip and we're, yeah, basically like, this is our guy. We've got to figure out what we can do. But at the same time, then we're like, well, we don't, we can't afford to do anything right now because we're just, you know, starting up. Um, but, uh, so, so, you, so you, you move back. What, um, what was it about them, I guess, professionally and personally that, you know, had you thinking like, 
yeah, I want to be on board with these guys versus trying to to go strike out on my own. Um, well, they, again, they had gotten the first legal distillery since prohibition in Mississippi. I knew I couldn't have that. And so one of the things I told them was that, you know, you guys have the first distillery in Mississippi since prohibition. I just want my name on the first bottle of whiskey produced in Mississippi. Right. And that was kind of, you know, if I couldn't have the first distillery in Mississippi, why not be the first distiller since Prohibition, right? There you go. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you got to cut your losses somewhere. So, <laughs> um, But no, I, I mean, from talking with them that first week, you know, we knew some of the same people. We had a lot of the same uh, thing, you know, we enjoyed some of the same things like music. I was, I'm a big music fan. I love, love music. These guys do too. Um, you know, they were young, they're my age. Uh, you know, I liked that, that they were very open to, uh, ideas and, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been great since I, I, I came on. I mean, they, they only had one singular product. Um, they were just doing vodka at that time and, you know, came in and started just making some quality products, you know, putting out a, a bunch of different uh, flavors, not a bunch, but, you know, we came out with a honeysuckle vodka, we came out with a, a chicory liqueur, a pecan flavored vodka using natural pecans and started working on the whiskey program. So, you know, I, I, I really, I liked that they were aggressive in the idea of, of, you know, wanting to get things moving and, you know, we're ready to, to get going. Yeah. And you, obviously you mentioned the, the fact that live music is such a big part of the distillery's mission. Cathead being a, a blues reference support live music is on every bottle. Um, but, but also there seems to be this true dedication to capturing the essence of, of local and Southern ingredients um, why is that something that's important to you? I mean, we're all from the South. So, you know, it's a lot of the products that I started coming up with are, you know, just relative to growing up in the South. Um, you know, the honeysuckle flavored vodka, honeysuckle grows in the South as a kid pulling it off the vine and, you know, um, sucking the nectar off and uh, just very reminiscent of growing up in the South pecans. Pecans are a huge part, you know, tons of pecan trees down here, tons of pecan farms. Um, That's very relative to to growing up in the South. Chicory. We do a a chicory liqueur, you know, chicory and coffee, New Orleans, uh, Cafe Du Monde, you know, it's relative to growing up in the South again, you know? Um, and, and, you know, we've, we, those first couple of ones were very, very relative to growing up in the South. And I mean, we even have a new product, uh, bitter orange flavored vodka, which is, uh, has bitter orange in it. Now, is there a lot of bitter orange, you know, growing in, in the South? Not a lot, but there is Satsuma. So, you know, I added a little Satsuma in there just to kind of keep that, you know, that ball rolling of, having products that that are 
you know, representative of the Southeast, really. Yeah. Um, kind of tell a story. You know, I like, I like, I'm a big storyteller. I like to tell a story through the products, you know. What, uh, I guess in general then, like, what what's the story that you tell about Cathead Vodka? Because it, I think that's, um, you know, it's kind of been the flagship all along, right? Right. Yeah, so the, the vodka is a corn-based vodka, you know. Mississippi, you know, with the Delta region, there's a lot of corn being grown in Mississippi. Um, and to represent kind of the idea of, of where we're from and, and represent Mississippi, we wanted it to be a corn-based vodka instead of, you know, potato or, or wheat or, you know, um, you know, in, in Napa, there was a lot of, of wine base, you know, I, I did Napa Valley Distillery. I did one of their first uh, vodkas out of Savion Blanc grapes, you know, so it was a representative of, of where we are in Mississippi. So, you know, it's a corn based vodka, um, you know, 80 proof, just, you know, keeping the the classic, you know, sweet kind of creamy tones to it and, you know, representative of that, but. And then on the, the whiskey side of things, you have, uh, old soul right now, which is, uh, a, a blended product. Talk a little bit about what the, the future of the whiskey program looks like at Cathead. Yeah. Old soul. Um, so old soul, yes, is a blend of some, whiskey that is uh, distilled in Indiana and then we bring it in as white dog or unaged product and age it here in Mississippi in our barrel room. Um, everything's aged in 53 gallon barrels. Uh, you know, we do multiple uh, proofs and multiple chars and things like that just to, you know, have more access to for the blending purposes. But um, yeah, Old Soul is, is doing great right now. You know, we're seeing a pretty big increase currently in the single barrel selections. Um, really trying to build that program right now, uh, along with, um, I think I'm about to do another blend of, of Old Soul here in a couple of weeks. I'm going to harvest some barrels and put together another blend to put out. And uh, I believe that will be our third uh, national release or, you know, in all the states that we're in currently. And um we've come out with some rare and limited old soul which is you know when we find something that's you know unique or, or older age statements we have we put out a 13 year old old soul and a 15 year old old soul um to the market and those have also helped kind of build the brand up and and kind of see that not only are we we making a great bourbon but we're also you know, putting out some older age statement stuff that, that we're, we're finding when we find it. Nice. Um, are there any other future products you're, you're excited about or that you even can talk about right now? Yeah. Um, I guess I could talk about them. Uh, you know, we have a lot of our own, uh, cathead distillery produced, you know, distilled age and bottled, um, or to be bottled, uh, whiskey's coming of age this year. They're all going to be starting to hit that, uh, four year mark, you know, and we have some 
some weeded bourbons. We got a hundred percent wheat, uh, whiskey coming out. Um, you know, we've got some great corn whiskey that's aging and, and hogshead barrels right now. Um, and we'll start to put those out here in the next, you know, hopefully this fall, um, you'll start to see some, some of the weeded bourbon and some of the hundred percent wheat on the market. And those, those whiskeys and those bourbons are tasting great right now and just kind of letting them get to their peak and make sure that they're ready for the market. You know, that is, that that's very exciting. Um, look forward to that. Um, I'm curious when you go back and just kind of think about things, um, you know, overall the last, I guess, like 10 years, um, how much did it mean to you to, to be able to, to come home to Mississippi and do what you love in the, the, the state where you were born? It means a lot. Um, you know, my grandfather was a bourbon drinker through and through he was a big wild turkey fan um you know he that was his drink of choice was was bourbon and you know my dad unfortunately was not a uh a liquor drinker at all he was more of kind of you know your your beer drinker um but you know it was it was great and it was very important to me when i came back to uh be able to show my grandfather when he was still alive, you know, as a, as a true bourbon drinker, you know, some of the stuff that we were doing at Cathead and, you know, um, it made me, I think it made him proud, but it made me very proud to be able to, you know, show that quality bourbons can be made in, in Mississippi. Do you, do you ever miss making wine? You know, I get that question a lot. I do. I, I you know, I really, I miss the romantic side of the wine, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, um, winemaking is, is unique in the sense that, you know, you only get one shot every year to make it, you know, yeah. if, if something goes wrong, you got to wait a whole nother year, right. To make it, something goes wrong in the distilling world, you know, you can do another match, right. I mean, you could, you can redistill it if you had to, you know, um, you don't really want to, but you know, if something does end up happening then, um, you know, you can, you kind of have another chance. Um, so I miss that kind of idea of it, you know, being a little bit more, uh, romantic in the sense of, of, you know, you get one shot every year, you know, sitting on the line, sorting grapes, you know, getting that sugar high from sitting there eating them all day, you know, taking lunches and having great lunches with people in the middle of the day. You know, uh, I always like to say that the distilling world is a little bit more uh, industrialized in that sense of, uh, you know, once you turn it on, you can't turn it off kind of a deal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can, but, you know, you, you uh, it's, it seems like that uh, there's there's never any any stopping for for whiskey, you know. Right. Uh, would you ever go back to it? Um. You know, I I don't know. I I would love to. Uh, you know, 
I luckily have family again that owns a winery and a cousin that makes wine and, and, you know, DuBose winery in, in Adelaide in the Paso, Paso Robles region. So, you know, whenever I kind of want to, you know, dip my toes back into it, you know, I'll just, I'll go out there for, for a week, you know, it's kind of like watching somebody's kid. You can always give them back. Right. <laughs> so I'll kind of go out there, you know, and do my, you know, 14 hour a day job, you know, work, you know, clean, you know, get wet, drive the forklift, sort the grapes, pick the grapes, all that kind of fun stuff. And then, you know, all right, see you guys later. That was fun. You know, uh, back to, back to making real alcohol, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I, I, that's kind of, you know, I'm lucky in that sense that I'm, I'm still surrounded by a lot of great wines, you know, with my sister, um, you know, I still have a great wine collection here at my house. Uh, I have family that that makes wine. So, you know, I don't feel like I'm totally missing out. So I guess the, the final thing I'm wondering is what are the things that you are most proud of in your time at Cathead? I'd say some of the most things I'm proud of at my time at Cathead would probably be, you know, we put out um honeysuckle flavored vodka that was the first and i I believe the only flavored honeysuckle flavored vodka on the market and currently still is you know there's some honeysuckle flavored moonshines and um you know i think some other like liqueurs and things like that currently but you know we were the first to do a honeysuckle flavored product distilled spirits product and that was the honeysuckle flavored vodka um and not only that the the chicory liqueur um had never been done you know that's uh the chicory liqueur is aged on chicory root and used bourbon barrels and uh that is still the only current chicory liqueur on the market so it's the first and only chicory liqueur on the market and um you know i think that ties into being the first legal distillery since Prohibition in Mississippi, the first distiller in Mississippi since Prohibition, coming out with some unique products that are representative of the South and growing up in the South and being from the South and kind of tell a story. You know, those are very important to me. Um, and, you know, all every, everything else that Cathead does is very important also, you know, from supporting different foundations in every state we're in, you know, live music. Um, you know, we, we just like to have a good time. We're still family owned, you know, those are all the story of Cathead. That's our program for today. Thanks again to Philip Ladner for joining me. You can learn more about the distillery at catheaddistillery.com. And you can also read more about Philip, Richard, and Austin in the latest issue of Craft Spirits Magazine. You can find that and subscribe for free at craftspiritsmag.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers. Cheers.